Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. So did you get the assignment you wanted? No. <laughs> uh, I really wanted to go to Lake and Heath. Uh, I wanted to go see the world. Um, but uh, the, the, you know, the higher ranking guys, the, the cross train guys got their first picks. And um, I want to say there were only a couple of Lake and Heath assignments, but I got a Seymour assignment, which was the, the last pick. There's not much to choose from. I mean, you've got Seymour Johnson, Mountain Home up in uh, Idaho, and Alaska. Boise, and Alaska. Right. And then, and then Lake and Heath. That's, right. that's it, right? So there were very limited spots for the overseas uh, assignments, and I was I was looking to see the world. I was looking to do something more interesting, but uh, but I got Seymour. So, uh, you know, I was I was... I was less than pleased. I mean, obviously, you know, any of them are good. I was happy to go anywhere, but uh, just in the in the context of did I get what I want? No, not really. Uh, of course, I was, you know, it turned out fine. I had a great time there, but you know, it wasn't my number one assignment. So I got, I got selected. I guess it picked me that I was going to stay at like at uh, sorry at Seymour. Um, unbeknownst to me, the two operational units there, the three thirty fifth and three thirty sixth, have a draft. So every time a new class, new you know, B course class gets ready to graduate, um, the list of people who are going to be assigned there gets sent out to the to both squadrons. And I don't know the exact methodology that they use to pick, but they pick who's going to go where. And I think you know some of that has to do with there are people that know people. They know you know that guy's good or that guy's shit. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea where I fell in there um, because there, there wasn't anybody in particular in either of the squadrons that I knew, you know, I didn't have any uh, family or, or professional acquaintances in there. So I would hope, I don't know, maybe anybody, anybody that knows if you saw my name and uh, you know, I, I had a good or bad, let me know. But I got picked to go to the 336th. What's what's the first thing that happens then when you arrive in a new squadron? Harassment. No, um. that's where I was going with the question because <laughs> because I've been to the I've visited the Rockets and I visited the Chiefs at Seymour, um, and I remember seeing at, in the Chiefs, you know, a board saying FNG one, FNG two, FNG three. Although they call them boy over there, they call them or, boy because maybe I, it was at the Rockets. Yeah, I saw I, that, and, and we were FNGs. In fact, we had FNG name tags. Okay. And and the and the chiefs, um, their naming um, process is a secret. You know, yeah, you, have right. to, you have to be, you have to be, you have to go through it to understand it. But what was the naming process then? Um, this is your tactical call sign. Yeah. Uh, how does it work? And how did you end up with Hacker? Well, first of all, I'll say that um, there there was not a harassment process. I, I I've actually distinctly remember being very welcomed into the three thirty six when I got there. Um, 
you know, you had your, I remember going into the uh, DO's office, uh, Al Botine, AB, who, uh, again, was another one of the, uh, one of these guys that I'd read about, you know, was a Desert Storm vet, and he was in the Smallwood book, and so he was like one of these, you know, stalwarts, and, um, you know, he just laid it down uh, from a, from his perspective, you know, what his expectations of a brand new guy in the squadron were, you know, that, that my number one job was to get in the vault. My number one job was to learn. Number one job was to fly. Uh, I distinctly remember him saying, I shouldn't have to push you. I should have to pull you back. Um, so, um, you know, the stage was really set in terms of what they expected out of us. Now, you know, naturally as a, as a new guy, there's going to be, you know, gentle chiding around the squadron uh, about this or that. And uh, your errors are going to be a little bit more amplified than probably other people who are established names and all that kind of stuff. But uh, no, I, I really felt very welcomed. Um, the group of people that were there were terrific. You know, again, you're, you're in your, your first fighter squadron. It has sort of a fraternity atmosphere to it. It has a huge amount of brotherhood and fellowship. Uh, even as a new guy, you're welcomed in immediately. You're no longer just some, you know, shit pants out there. You're a rocket. Welcome to the squadron. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's the same at every squadron you're in. But, you know, you develop a tremendous amount of uh, sort of pride in your unit very early on. And that, you know, is manifests itself in a lot of high spirits. Uh, naming. So um, names are only given of uh, pilots who are mission qualified. So there is a mission qualification training process that takes place. It's another training course. Again, it sort of has a very similar footprint to what the B course has. It's same, you know, because you're you are basically certifying to your squadron commander that you can appropriately fly the mission sets that your squadron does performs. Um, and at the time, at least, you know, different squadrons had slightly different mission sets, but you know, in general, they were the same. So. Basically, mission qualification training at Lake Eneath would probably be basically the same as mission qualification training at Seymour, but you know I don't know that. Um, so there was a you know a BFM component, and there was a high aspect BFM component, and surface attack, and things like that. So, um, gosh, I remember it being maybe somewhere on the order of like ten flights. Uh, it took you know a month or two. It wasn't it wasn't too complicated. How many hours have you got then in the jet? Sixty nine. Good number. Yeah, 69 is always the right answer. Uh, it was less than 100 uh, when I graduated the B course. Probably was really 69. Um, so not, you know, all things considered, pretty inexperienced. Um, I certainly was not comfortable in the airplane when I got there. I wasn't comfortable tactically employing the airplane. Uh, I wasn't comfortable going to the tanker and getting gas. Um, it was still... There was still so much to know about flying the airplane well. Same kind of story with the T-38. You know, you can, you can put somebody in it and they can kind of, you know, haphazardly make their way through and safely fly the airplane. But there's a big leap between that and being able to do it with some level of actual proficiency. And um, the, the learning curve is steep, especially when you're adding, you know, new components, new bits of tactics um, the training wheels have come off, you know, just and, and unlike the limited scenarios that you're exposed to when you're in a B course, you know, the scenarios that you get out in an operational unit, they're trying to prepare you to go against the, uh, you know, the flanker with chucks and ducks. So um, scenarios are more complicated in mission qual. They're less complicated than, you, you, you know, you would see on a just a vanilla training mission with qualified people. But <coughs> um, 
So anyway, uh, after MQT, that's when you're sort of eligible to be named. The process as somebody who is being named, you don't get involved, obviously, in seeing how the name is chosen for you. Um, Once you are a named member, then you're authorized now to participate in the naming process. So behind the scenes, um, you know, all the named people gather together and uh, over the course of, of your limited time with the squadron as a namee, the people that you've been flying with have been picking up the squadron doofer book. We haven't really talked about that, but that's a, you know, kind of a sort of blank notebook that sits in the bar that only named member of the squadrons are authorized to read and write in. And, uh, you know, there's a little section in there, numbers of, you know, potential names for a particular person. And so, you know, when an instructor flew with me that, you know, I'm sure I did some boneheaded kind of thing. And afterwards they said, oh, geez, this guy, you know, let's call him. Pantalonius de Caca or whatever. And so, you know, they'll put, there'll be sort of a, a pre-programmed set of names that you've earned um, over the course of your time with the squadron. So in, in now fast forward to in the, the squadron briefing room, all the named members are in there and the doors are locked and the beer is flowing and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll individually go in and consider the names that have been put into the do for book. And then, you know, with the, the wisdom that comes out of the fluid of knowledge uh, new call signs are dreamt up, and uh, eventually they'll you know vote on whichever one is the uh, the appropriate one. Um, you know we could go through the the vast etymology of how call signs come up. Give us just give us some examples, and you you have to tell us why why yours is yours. I have to. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Can I need leave nothing to the imagination? You, you, we, we said we would do an ask, an ask me anything. We've done an ask me anything. But and, it's not and, answer and, me anything. It's ask <laughs> me anything. So okay, so 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 let's start then with some others. Let's see, <laughs> see if we can get you warmed up. Uh, okay, so the easiest call sign is the natural, and the natural is if you have a name that resembles something else, uh, a pop culture star movie star, um, famous Air Force person, like, you know, if your last name's Arnold, well, a natural might be Hap Arnold, right? Or, you know, if you're uh, Davies, it might be Steve Davies. Steve Davies, right? Um, So, or if it's, uh, or if it's a, I'll I'll, I'll mention a name that's not somebody that I flew with, but I think it's a funny call sign. Uh, There was someone whose last name was Harder, and his call sign was Poker. Right. So these are, you know, they 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 form a a phrase, a humorous uh, turn of words. That's a natural. Uh, Then you have your your acronym call signs. You know, there's um, there's some you know famous ones that people would know. There was the guy who I actually met who was an F-16 pilot whose call sign was rotor and it meant rant off the overrun. (laughs) Um, Spin. Yeah, th- yeah. I mean, there's uh, there was a Strike Eagle guy who attempted to be named Stuffer, and it meant "Stop talking, you fucking retard." You know, I mean, there's uh, all kinds, of, and you can tell that they're very flattering names, right? I mean, it's just like being Iceman or Maverick. It's a it's a very like strong, glorious call sign. It's always meant to show how awesome you are, or alternately, it's really meant to be something co- sort of humiliating. You know, it's meant to be. Uh, um, Anyway, that's not uh, that's the the acronyms. 
usually are um, um, commentary on something that you have done less than proficiently or, or humorously. Uh, and then there's just the named call signs that, um, I don't know, you accidentally jettisoned the canopy uh, when you shouldn't have in flight, and now your call sign's ragtop. You know, whatever. I mean, there's, there's, there's endless possibilities with that. And again, it's all based on things that you've done wrong. So, Hacker, your call sign. How'd you get it? Where'd it come from? It's a funny name, isn't it? Lots of people think that it means that, uh, like, I'm a bad golfer. I don't, I don't golf, but apparently that's like uh, if you... Hack at the ball. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I get lots of people be like, oh, is it about golf? Yeah. Lots of people think it's like, oh, do you are you like a smoker? Do you cough a lot or something like that? And no. Um, okay, so the quick and dirty of it is um, at the time that I was going through the B course, uh, in the sort of late 90s, 98, 99, um, I was a techno geek. And I had my own website, a uh, totally different topic that we can talk about, but uh, I had a journal that I kept, an online journal that I kept while I was going through the training process. Uh, but I had the technical skill to, to host a web domain and, and build a website and all that kind of stuff, which was a, you know, a pretty savvy skill at the time. And um, <clears throat> so when my B course uh, class got all of our academic information and our test gouge and stuff like that, um, I volunteered to basically host uh, that test information. And, um, so people that were outside that were not students that were looking at that had a different perception of kind of, uh, what that information was. And so the, the, the joke was that, uh, or I guess the accusation, the not, the not terribly true accusation was that I had, uh, hacked into the McDonnell Douglas web servers and stolen the tests and stolen the test information. And, uh, so that story happened while I was in the B course, and then the uh, that made its way across the street over to the operational squadron. So, so we we're going to do a special uh, podcast on your combat experience. Uh, you're going to come back, and we'll do that another time. Um, and I know that in the next you know sort of hour or so of us talking, you'll reference your your combat time. Um, but when you have a, a call sign and you fly in combat with it. Does that then mean it's fixed? It can't be changed. <laughs> that's yeah. That's the custom. Yeah, okay. that's the custom. If you've if you've flown in combat with a call sign, that's your call sign, regardless if you uh, do something stupid from there. On so out. that works both ways then. So you could have a call <laughs> sign you actually kind of like, and and you get to you get to keep it, or you yep, could have one pretty that you much, don't yeah. like. Okay. Yeah, right. and and I I know of people who. Uh, had call signs that they didn't like, and then they spent like the rest of their career trying to to undo uh, that call sign. You know that. Uh, God, there was a guy that I flew Eagles with who uh, had a particularly non-flattering call sign, but he was a good guy. And um, you know, when we went different ways, um, several years later, I, I heard them mentioning this this guy. You know, and oh yeah, he was a strike eagle guy. You'd you'd know him. And I was like, I don't know anybody that goes by that name and then they'd be like oh hey i talked to him and he knows who you are you know and how come you don't know him and and come to find out that it was a guy who had a again non-flattering call sign that when he moved he saw it as an opportunity to you know start anew and convinced a new group of people that he had a different name and i i, I took a little bit of pleasure in saying no <laughs> no that's not his name <laughs> this is his real name take this back to your unit and and uh next time you're in the bar introduce that and you're no longer friends now. i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't. I, he's blocked me on Facebook, which is you know the official yardstick of whether you're friends with somebody. So, 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 you know, picking up on the 
the chronology of your career. You've you've not arrived at Seymour because you were already there, but you've arrived now at the Rockets. Um, you've had this, you know, sort of great introduction from your squadron commander. He set the <laughs> set set the bar. You know what you've got to do. You 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 become mission qualified. What does the rest of the tour look like? Well, as I said earlier, you know, my first year was just full of all kinds of really great experiences. Uh, I got to go to Red Flag for the first time, and you know, we could we could fill an entire podcast about okay. that. Just fill just fill ten minutes on that, then, if you if you can. I mean, okay, so, sure. So, yeah. it, um, so that for me took place. Oh, I don't know, maybe six months after I'd arrived. So I was still very new, and um, you know. Uh, Certainly, that is a, an exercise that I have known about for quite a long time. You know, there was a there was an old Aviation Week video on Red Flag from like 1984 or 1985 that I had on a VHF VHS cassette that uh, I had you know worn out watching the video of F5s and all that kind of stuff uh, doing battle with Phantoms and the old um, you know ACMI but really stupid looking Atari uh, digital uh, ACMI replays and stuff. And I just, I loved it. So I had it in my mind that it was this, you know, great uh, thing that I was going to go do. So it was very exciting, especially, you know, given for for those people that don't know, the genesis of Red Flag was uh, a guy named Moody Suter who looked at the Red Baron reports, which were the, um, essentially the, the, the combat effectiveness reports from Vietnam War for the Air War, uh, which... The study essentially said that if you could get a pilot to pass his or, or survive his first 10 combat missions, that his chances of surviving the, the rest of the, you know, I guess 90 if you're a 100 mission guy, uh, went up exponentially. So his idea was let's set up an exercise that has the intensity level of actual combat operations so we can pre expose a fighter pilot to those first 10 combat missions. Um, so, you know, in my mind, having never participated in that, you know, it builds it up to this you know, 12 foot tall kind of threat. Uh, so I was really excited to go. Um, certainly when I got there, there was so much to learn about, uh, a new place to fly. I'd never flown at Nellis before. Um, operations in and out of the range, uh, flying with a, uh, a ACMI, you know, a data link pod that was data linking my, my information back to a, a large mission replay system that was, you know, tracking and, and, could display the the progress of an entire air war um just lots of new things and the the part that really sticks out with me as i look back is on my first mission that i was flying which was a, a day mission it was a uh, interdiction mission so i was dropping bombs on something i don't know what it was um and i was a two-ship formation in a much larger strike package. I don't remember how many were in there, but it may have been like a sort of a 20-ish aircraft strike package. So it was, it was substantial. And there were <clears throat> um, another squadron. The, the chiefs were actually there at the same time, and they were our off- offensive counter-air support. Um, it was something like a, I don't know, a 50-aircraft, you know, friendly mission. And in... You know, you start out with this daily mass briefing, you know, in like this 300 or 400 person red flag briefing room where they talk about what's going to happen. And then you break down and then there's a, uh, you know, the strike mission commander briefs all the strike aircraft. And then you further break it down and, and you finally get down to your two ship. And uh, the guy that was my flight lead was a guy named Flash Fitzsimmons. And um, he he 
I assumed that we were going to sit down and have like a full, you know, all four of us were going to get in a briefing room. We're going to have our normal element briefing and all that kind of stuff. And all he said was, was don't lose sight. And that was it. And, that, you know, we grabbed our shit and we started walking out to the airplanes. And I thought, what the, what the fuck? I mean, like, that's that's what you're going to brief me? Don't lose sight? Like, this is my, you know, primary responsibility as a wingman. I know not to fucking lose sight. And, um, you know, little did I know that that was pretty sage advice that, you know, um, you know, once things are, are getting really harried out there and there's airplanes everywhere and there's all kinds of stuff going on that, you know, if I can just focus on the one task of not losing sight, you know, hang on while things are going crazy and there's Sam's and bandits and all kinds of shit happening on the, you know, radios and in life and all that, uh, that turned out to be a much tougher task than I, uh, than I actually expected it to be. Um, not on that flight, but on a subsequent flight, I actually did lose my flight lead on the way out, leaving the target area. Um, similar type of scenario uh, as, as what I just mentioned. This was, I don't know, probably third or fourth, you know, red flag mission. And uh, it was a, a low altitude ingress to the target and then a low altitude egress as well. I got into the, or I was on the way into the target area and uh, I got, jumped or I guess I, I sort of almost ran into a aggressor. It was an F-16 that <clears throat> I merged with down low and he, he kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I was flying down low, just totally padlocked on not hitting the rocks and there's my flight lead. I'm not hitting the rocks and there's my flight lead. And uh, for whatever reason, this guy just kind of popped out of nowhere over a ridgeline. Down low, you're not able to actually do a full, you know, BFM engagement. You're limited to, I, I think it's 180 degrees a turn. Anyway, we did that turn and, and terminated the engagement. By that time, me and my flight leader are stripped. I, I really don't know where he is. So I tell him on the radio, hey, I'm blind. Um, and he tells me a direction to go. Or, you know, he, he's proceed directly to the initial point or, you know, go to the target or whatever. Because we were, we were separate. And um, he's like, I'll be waiting for you when you come off target. So I, you know, make my way in and, and uh, we execute our our attack on the target, come back off target. And what I expected, I, I don't know, it it's, seems kind of stupid to me right now, but I, ex I guess I expected, you know, it would be like being on the range at home, you know, where the my flight lead would just be sort of out there orbiting at, at an obvious spot and I would see him and rejoin on him and we'd, you know, skip home. <laughs> uh, but that was fairly unrealistic. <laughs> so what really happened was I came off target, my radar's out there, and I don't see anybody. So I tell him on the radio, hey, I don't know where you are. Uh, and he tells me his bullseye position. So I've got some sort of awareness as to where he is. But regardless, I, I point my nose toward our, our egress point And I just, you know, put it up into afterburner and haul ass. And as I'm, you know, talking to my flight lead, we're kind of getting updates on position. You, you know, I'm still staying quiet on the radio because there's a lot of shit going on out there. And you don't want to just be the guy who's jabbering on the radio as we'll... As we'll see when it's time to review, uh, you know, some actual combat footage. I wasn't that guy, but somebody else was that guy. Um, you're kind of trying to, trying to remain radio silent and, and afford us to rejoin together. And this was pre-data link days. <coughs> so um, it turns out I, I snag a radar lock on a, on a Strike Eagle. And he I interrogate his system, and, and I can tell it's an E-model. So um, I go, hey, you know, one, I see, I got you in sight. He's like, all right, you're cleared to rejoin. So, and he's he's quite a few miles away, so I, you know, just plug it into burner and and uh, you know, join up on this guy. And um, 
it's not the right guy. And the only way that I know this was a few seconds after I joined up, I see the flight lead or, you know, I guess the pilot, and he looks over and, and he, he sees me and he does a big double take. And then the Wizzo does the same thing. And, you know, obviously it's not, they're like, and, and I thought, well, that's really strange. That's not the reaction. Are you surprised? I just told you that I had you inside and you told me to rejoin. So you're really, are you surprised by that? And shortly after that, my little bingo bug goes off because I've spent a whole bunch of time at Afterburner trying to k- catch up to him. So I go, two's bingo. One, you know, and he doesn't, he doesn't, hasn't said anything on the radio, but right about that time, the airplane that I'm formed up on pokes his nose up like we were in the low altitude environment. Right. And he just starts climbing away. So all right, that's not really all that, you know, strange once I've called bingo for us to climb up and, and pull it back. But no, his burners are lit as we're climbing up. So I'm like, you ass, like. Like, you're, you're not a very good flight lead that I've just called bingo, and now you're climbing up in blower, and now you're going to make me get it. Okay, whatever. I'll be a good, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a new wingman. All right, I'll stay in position. So, you know, I stroke up the burner, and I go up with him. And, I don't know, we're passing through about ten or 12,000 feet, and I hear on the radio, hey, two, where are you? And I'm like, I'm off your left wing. He goes, no, you're not. And so it's about this point that my backseater and I both realize, oh, and uh, the backseater that I was with, uh, uh, he, he says, you know, I could have looked down at my lineup card and seen that that's not the same tail number as the airplane that we took off with. And I'm like, yeah, I could have done that, too. Fuck. Now what? You know, now I'm I've never joined up with the wrong guy before. What do I do now? So. You know, my flight lead over the radio goes, I just stick with who you got, you know, go, go back home. So, um, you know, we get out to the, the point called Texas Lake, which is where everybody kind of gets to, you've probably seen that before where you get together and, and go back down the Sally corridor to go back to Nellis. And, and at that point he starts giving me visual signals to get us all on the same frequency. And I check in with him and it's, uh, it's, it's Moto Nima. It's, it's my wink or my uh, weapons officer. So now I'm even more humiliated. Fuck, now that I, I've, I've lost my flight lead and the guy that I've joined up in is the, the weapons officer. <laughs> so he's going to have something to say about my, my awesome performance. Uh, anyway, so we went, went back home and, and the, the debrief was a little awkward. I had two debriefs to go to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, the, you know, that's just kind of one of those things where uh, it's, it's a lesson that you don't necessarily get. Uh, just sort of statewide, stateside training or just non, you know, large force exercise training. I'd, I'd never been in a scenario where there were so many aircraft that we could get separated and I could randomly. There was another Strike Eagle that for whatever reason was alone and, and had the right, you know, uh, color painted up on the tail, you know. Um, so and I would say that there was probably quite a few lessons like that, that this laboratory allowed me to experience and you know I so I kind of get the whole idea of being exposed to that sort of high high intense environment um you know make it toughens you up you know it certainly increases your chances of success later on that well that's the obvious question isn't it so you went and again we'll do we'll do a, a dedicated podcast on it so don't don't feel like you have to go into too much detail but you went to Iraq in March 2003. Uh, you were part of the fighting or the shooting war, as it was, mm-hmm. you know, euphemistically called. Um, 
did, did you sort of at that time reflect on your red flag experience yeah. and things? Red flag was harder than real combat. I can say that unequivocally. Right. I mean, outside of the threat of actually being shot down, you know, and those those moments of terror that you get when you realize that your life is actually in danger. Outside of that, in terms of the chaos and the fog of war and the and the all of the things that are happening at the same time, I distinctly remember thinking, eh, red flag was harder than this. And you know, on the on the flip side of that, um, especially as again a new, I went to Red Flag as a new guy. There were a lot of things that happened there that also uh, made me a lot more confident. I mean, on on one hand, you know, getting separated from my flight lead, it seems like a minor kind of stupid thing, but it it really reminded me that the the whole fog of war concept. I mean, it's re- it's really chaos, even when you have these very intricately planned missions and you have specific places to be at specific times at specific altitudes and you have all these tactics and things that even based in all of that, you know, you, the, the whole idea about you plan with a micrometer and you execute with a chainsaw, um, it really sort of reinforced that. But on, on the same way, um, you know, you, you, you get to go, um, you get to fly against simulators of Sam's very, very, highly fidelity <laughs> simulators of Sam's and it validates these tactics that you read about, you know, I mean, uh, when you're in training, they say, okay, you, you know, move the jet this way, do a glib two, do a level S and there's never any real world feedback. And, you know, I saw, I guess I was kind of ambivalent about it. Um, but at red flag, they have a camera that's mounted to the Sam site and there's you in the camera, and they show this in front of the entire red flag debriefing room, you know, for a couple hundred people. And, um, you know, there's a, it shows the, you know, radar lock or whatever, and it, it, it shows your maneuvering. And you can see yourself executing these tactics, and you can see how those tactics actually work against, a, you know, a great SAM operator in, in a, a very high-fidelity simulator. So that, to me... Um, produced a very high level of confidence that, you know, I know it seems stupid, but, you know, that the people that wrote the tactics know what they're talking about. Um, and so, again, fast forwarding to getting in real com- uh, combat, um, it, it, it set kind of in my mind that the path to success was to do what I was trained to do. And, again, sounds stupid, but, um, you know, there's... Uh, for me, you know, especially at the very beginning, um, being in real combat and seeing AAA and SAMs go off and things like that, it's terrifying. It really sort of um, puts you off balance. Uh, I've, I've had moments where I was like quite literally paralyzed by fear. And then the way out of that is, okay, do what you're trained to do. You know, fall back on that training. And that's quite closely interlinked to seeing in in real world practice that those tactics do actually work mm. how many hours or how much time had you spent with the rockets then when you deployed i mean i think i had about 700 hours um which it's not really a a, a lot of time um but that's 700 hours total time, right? You're not talking about 700 hours in the Strike Eagle? No, I think it was about 700 okay. hours of Strike okay. Eagle time. So yeah. so, so where are you comfortable at that point? A couple of times in the conversation earlier, you, you, you talked about, you know, 
you, you could fly a T-38 or you could fly a Strike Eagle, but you weren't comfortable doing it. You didn't really know what you were doing. Um, and I That's talk, still the case today. Still, <laughs> but, but people talk about HOTAS in, in the same way, and that's maybe part of that conversation. You know, Someone said to me, even for something like the Eagle, which is not as complex as maybe the, the Viper, 300 hours or so to get really get com- uh, that's, comfortable. That's with, fairly accurate. Yeah. And I th- I, by my recollection, I think that that was sort of a, a, a typical annual flying amount was about 300 hours. So a year or so of flying the airplane, and you should be starting to feel comfortable. I, I think that's true. And in again, the numbers are, are kind of failing me right now, but I think it was 300 hours that was required for you to upgrade to flight lead. And that roughly translated up to about a year's experience uh, in, in the squadron. And so when I, you know, basically as a 700 hour pilot, when I went to Iraq, I was a very different pilot, you know, than I was when I first showed up. Um, Qualification-wise, I was a four-ship flight lead. Uh, I had done a couple of rides of instructor upgrade, although I hadn't completed it at the time that I went off. Um, So, you know, I was much more comfortable both in the airplane and obviously being a a tactical leader of other airplanes at the time. Um, I I had no experience being shot at at that point, which, strangely enough, is is a you know interesting experience of its own. Um, But um, I, I was certainly as comfortable in the airplane as I have ever been in the airplane. And and I would argue even at that point that I was probably more comfortable in the airplane then than I ever was at any other point in my career, even after I went back to the Strike Eagle the second time. So that's an interesting interesting rabbit hole to go down. And again, from my, my general aviation experience, I remember instructors saying to me that for civilian flying, there's a... There's a point at about the 300, 400 hour mark where you become complacent. You're actually you're most quite, dangerous. You're quite likely right. to have an accident. And for military pilots, they said to me, um, because my CFI when I when I went to fly helicopters was a, was an ex-Royal Navy test pilot. He said it's a thousand hours for military pilots. That's typically. I where think that's, that's probably true. So 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 is that a reflection of that? The fact that you felt most comfortable then um, then at any point before or after. Does that sort of... um... Well, there's certainly a component of, I think, my self-awareness as an aviator on my second tour. I I knew what I didn't know. Um, And, you know, I would even say that today. I I, I will jokingly tell people that I know less today than I ever have at any point in my aviation career. And that's not a, a quantity or experience argument. That is, I know more is out there that I don't know, right? So the, the quantity of unknowns is larger than, than, than it was in the past. So, um, and obviously, you know, aviators are always learning. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's a fairly accurate assessment. Um, it, was, it was a question of combination of, I guess, uh, proficiency at that point, um, you know, I'd done a lot of flying, um, the, the hourly requirements <clears throat> for, you know, annual training were still relatively high. The budgets had a lot of flying in them and it was the first time I had learned these things. So these were, you know, fresh lessons to me. Again, certainly I, I, I hadn't done any combat deployments before that time. So I didn't have the kind of cocksureness that the, the, the combat veterans had, you know, one one of the things just very quickly on a, a very early combat mission, it wasn't the very first night that I flew, but it was, uh, maybe my, my second or third flight in, I was, uh, in a four ship formation. I was the number three of the four ship, um, leaving the tanker 
in northern Saudi Arabia and heading north toward Baghdad. And since it was, it had just started to get dark, and we, uh, it, it used to be that the the E model required um, some filters to be placed in the cockpit so you could be on NVGs. So you'd, it took you know sort of five or ten minutes to kind of open up this kid, and while the airplane's on autopilot or the backseat is flying or whatever, you're you know setting up the cockpit. And then once it's all set, then you put the goggles on and you click them down. And when I you know when I clicked them down, way off in the distance, I could see you know sort of the the Baghdad area and it looked like a fucking maelstrom man like there was just like the whole everything was black except this one area where there was just fire and iron everywhere and that was one of those you know frozen with fear moments like I was holy shit and right in the middle of that my flight lead who had been a he was a an 05 at the time and he had been a um a veteran of uh you know Baltic war kind of you know Yugoslavia Serbia yep um he got on the radio and his comment was, here they come, boys. And it was like, I know it sounds stupid and it was kind of, you know, just a, a, an offhand comment. But he was so calm and so cool that I was like, all right, if he's that cool, I can be that cool, too. You know, I mean, if he's that confident that, you know, tighten your seatbelt down, man, it's, it's about to get good. That gave me a lot of confidence, too. You know, so I didn't have quite the same um you know, I guess aptitude or, or, you know, whatever of guys that had been there before. Uh, maybe my apprehension level, you know, made me uh, pay attention a little bit more. <laughs> because certainly, you know, as, as we'll talk, we can talk about later, but, you know, my later on, uh, you know, weeks later, I was very desensitized to these startling things where, you know, I would see surface air missile launches and just sort of casually talk about it. And, I, you know, I would know in the first five seconds whether it was coming my way and if it wasn't coming my way then fuck it I don't need to pay attention to it you know where where early on you know I'm watching everything like a hawk and making sure that it's not coming at me because it feels like all of them are coming at you um and you know that's that's what these guys who were already combat vets they'd already sort of learned those lessons and I'm guessing at least at least externally they gave the appearance of being you know desensitized to that I think I think it was Robin Olds, wasn't it, who, who said that you know fear is a natural thing. Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed in. Right. That the real skill is taking that and turning it into an action. Into, For sure, into yeah. a, you know some kind of positive energy. Um, you, do do you then? I, I know that you you shouldn't compare wars. Um, you know, but it, but in in Southeast Asia, those guys were having people shot down all the time. You know the the numbers were just ridiculous, um, and to do a hundred missions was extraordinary. Right. Um, not quite the same Southwest Asia, no, not quite not. the same in, in Iraq. But no. you did lose people. You, you, there were there was we one strike you shot down. I think Salty was it Salty Watkins and Das Boot, right. um, and may have been shot down. Okay. May have been so that's undetermined. Special but I, but it, it very well could have been a shoot down. Yeah. you know they would, didn't rule that out. Okay, um, but but did. You know, do you do you get does that breed complacency? Well, you know, and it's the same with 1991. You know, the the the, the simulations said we're going to lose a bunch of people on the first night, and then it didn't happen. Um, you know, do, were you going into that thinking we're going to lose 30 percent, and and at the end of week four you hadn't, so now you're you're a bit cocky about it? Perhaps. You know, I, I will I will tell you from a personal perspective, I tried to block all that out. I, I definitely had the um, it's not going to happen to me. You know, kind of thought, you know, like if you sit around and dwell on, you know, I might get shot down, you, you're going to be unable to function. So I just didn't think about it. As stupid as that sounds, I didn't think about it. 
Uh, and it's not until certain things happen that sort of snap you back to reality. You know, I, I was I was on the ground when Boot and Salty went down. And so that's one of those moments that, wow, shit, now I'm now I'm really starting to think about my own mortality and things like that. You know, I had a, I had a near shoot down with a Roland that, you know, caused me a lot of self-reflection about that kind of stuff. But outside of those individual moments, you're still thinking it can't happen to me, you know, and that's what allows you, I think, to continue functioning. And as you say, the more time that goes on with all of this chaos happening around you, that nothing happens, uh, the more confident you get. And again, it's to the point where, um, you know, there were SAM launches and AAA and things that were going off later on in, in second, third, fourth week of the active kind of air war that uh, by the end, I wasn't even paying attention to them. That, you know, had it been the first night, I, it would have been a totally different reaction. You just you can't sustain that same level of adrenaline day after day after day after day after day. At some point, you just have to, you know, this, and this is when people sort of, it may be hyperbolic, but that, you know, you, you hear, um, you know, ground troops in, who are in these intense combat situations say, oh, I, I just accepted that I was already dead. And once I did that, then I calmed down or, or whatever. You know, eventually you just get to a point where you can't sustain this sort of level of you know, natural kind of incapacitating fear, and you just got to press past it. So I, I didn't have any particular situation. I, I don't know that I recognized that that changed, but it did. It was incremental. 